Welcome. This is Beyond the Illusion. In this episode, we have a conversation with Chad Foreman. It's an episode that's long overdue at this point because the focus of our discussion is meditation. It's funny that we've talked about so many different spiritual and self-help topics but never had an episode about meditation, which for me is one of the most crucial parts of my own development. It worked out perfectly though and I'm glad we waited until we were able to talk to Chad because he's an expert on the topic and has a unique perspective. In a few moments you'll hear Chad tell the story about his time in a Buddhist monastery as a young man which eventually led him to a somewhat controversial start to his own practice of teaching meditation. What I loved about talking to Chad was the genuine sincerity of his desire to help others through this ancient and powerful technique. Even though I've been meditating for years, Chad talked about several concepts that I was not aware of, such as some of the different types of meditation that exist, as well as combining different meditation and breathing techniques to achieve different goals. I'm really looking forward to trying some of these methods out myself. And before we go to the conversation, I wanted to let you know that Chad generously offered to guide us through a meditation at the end of this episode, which was simply amazing. Now, let's go to that conversation with Chad Foreman, Tiana Roser, and myself, Tim Howe. super interesting backstory. I think, I don't know a lot of people who are Buddhist monks, but I think a lot of people on the spiritual path have this fantasy of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to get away from the rat race and live in a spiritual community as a Buddhist monk? Can you tell us a little bit about your time there and how that led you on the path that you're on now? Sure. It was, I was a uh, tennis coach and I'd studied sports psychology and I'd actually gotten into meditation and mind training uh, for my tennis, to, to improve my tennis game when I was early 20s. And that led me to meditation and mind training. And eventually, I had the attitude that the more I trained in meditation, mindfulness and compassion, the happier I'd be. I'd studied enough Buddhism and I was convinced of that. So I thought I have to do this full time. So that kind of got me to drop out, move to a monastery. And I said, I'm going to do this full time in the spirit of training. You know, like I was training in tennis. I was training hours and hours on my forehand and my backhand and my serve. And the more I trained, the better I got. So with that attitude, I took it and I went to the monastery. Also, I was a little bit disillusioned with society and the paths that it offered me. And I come from a uh, not very wealthy family and it was just a slog to earn money uh, week by week and for a holiday once a year uh, and to pay bills. And it, it was a real struggle. So I renounced a lot of that and thought there must be a better way. And like you mentioned, the community what was a really beautiful community that I joined. It was based around spiritual concepts and we had shared meaning in what we were doing. So I dropped out. I became a full-time Buddhist practitioner. I lived in a little hut that had no electricity and no drinking water. So I had to carry my drinking water out there. 
and read books by candlelight. I didn't have any internet. I didn't have any uh, TV. I didn't. I did have a radio. I listened to the radio for my entertainment occasionally, but mostly I was digital free, uh, and that was beautiful. So, and that was a that was for nearly six years living in a little retreat hut on a Buddhist community, uh, studying the teachings full time, working in the community, uh, and it was probably one of the best experiences of my life. So, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I think a lot of people get caught up in this idea that there's only one way to have that really perfect life, you know, and, um, and we try to make it happen through our jobs and through, you know, like you were saying, like taking a vacation once a year, but it's just so limited, you know, I feel like people could, if they could just expand their options just a little, it would just open up their whole world. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I think it's the way of the future is small little communities like that, spiritual communities, ashrams centered around spiritual concepts of, of compassion and loving each other as much as you love yourself. That's a big part of the Buddhist community or Sangha is loving each other just as much as you love yourself. So that was a big part of the cohesion in that sort of thing. But I think we need alternatives to just the path that we're sort of given of money and debt and uh, accumulation. There's not much alternative out there, but I have found that in Buddhist communities and, and like I said, ashrams and yoga centers, and there's uh, eco-permaculture in, in Australia, that there's little communities popping up everywhere. And I, I think they're joining forces around the world too, and it's growing. So for me, I think it's the way of the future, that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree with you. Are you, is that the kind of lifestyle that you live now, like a more or less a, a modification of that? I tried. I experimented with my life. Like when I dropped out at 28, I, I grew up in the, in the city or the suburbs, I guess you say, and then I moved in the bush and I was wrestling uh, snakes out of my drawer and <laughs> it was quite wild living with, with, the, with the animals, basically in the bush there was a huge difference but no i've um i was convinced i had to leave the mountain so to speak my, my idyllic existence and come down and practice everything that i'd learned and and i started teaching so i wanted to teach more and join the community but uh, it is difficult it is difficult to live a lay life just in a house, I'm paying rent, I'm paying food, there's no community around me. So my, I've put my TV back on and I've slowly slipped into some old habits uh, and I'm trying to be normal <laughs> so I can relate to people. Like, unless my message is drop out, you know, become a monk, shave your head, that's the way to happiness. But I didn't think that was the way to happiness. I was convinced it was my mind training. But I've actually changed a little bit now. I think the your environment has a huge part to play in your existence. I think a lot of spirituality these days is too insular. It's too individual. It's just don't worry about the world. All I have to do is sort of change my mind and how I react, change my story, and then I can be happy. But when you're embedded within a capitalist society and all those norms within you, it's, it is difficult. We are very connected with our environment. Our bodies are connected with what we breathe, what we eat, what we see. We're very interactive with our environment. So I'm, as much as everyone else, I guess, 
dealing with with normal life and trying to live a spiritual life at the same time. But uh, I can say from experience that it was much easier in the uh, in the Buddhist center to do that. Isn't it sort of like the mastery course level or lesson though that whole be in the world but not of it? Of course, when we're away from it, it's much easier to connect to our spiritual nature without all the distractions and the temptations. But here in the thick of it, we get the opportunity to uh, really challenge ourselves to still keep our rootedness and our centeredness and our spiritual connection when there's all these things trying to pull us out of it. It is. It is the mastery side, and it, and it does take a high degree of skill. In the Buddhist path, they call it being a bodhisattva, and it's akin to like a spiritual warrior where you, you take on all those conditions um, and you transform them uh, or you're not affected by them and you can remain sovereign uh, and peaceful. But I think it can also go to the extreme and, and be a bit too detached. There's the issue of spiritual bypassing, uh, not having authentic relationships, sort of thinking that you're distant above everything. So it's a fine line, uh, and, and I think that it is worth mentioning that you can go to an extreme in that direction, thinking that you're completely detached from the world and it doesn't affect you. But everyone has to walk that line and find their balance. Well, we've never had a meditation teacher. It's funny because we've this is our third season of our podcast, and meditation is like the crux, the you know practice that most people do to really connect spiritually. Oddly enough, I don't know. Anyway, we were waiting for you. And so um, perhaps you could give some general guidelines about meditation for people that are new to it. I'm not sure if our, any of our listeners are brand spanking new, but maybe just some general guidelines of what really helps people or general meditation practice. Sure. I think the foundation of meditation is mindfulness being able to be in the present moment, clear and aware, without getting caught up in your thoughts, your judgments. So initially, and this is what we were just speaking about, there is a bit of detachment in mindfulness uh, therapy. They talk about being fused with your thoughts. So there's no other reality than sort of being one with your thoughts and jumping around and from one thought to the next, and often these days, a lot of people's thoughts are, are worrying thoughts, fearful thoughts. So it can be quite disturbing to live in those thoughts. So the first sort of stage and the basis of all meditation training is the ability to train your attention on what you want to focus on and not be pushed and pulled around uh, by your thoughts and, and your judgments. And that's the foundational skill to be able to do that. And we start by usually focusing your attention on an anchor, a meditation anchor, they would call it, or an object of meditation. And that's usually your breath, something simple, or body sensations, your posture, or repeating a phrase or a mantra. These are the most common kind of trainings in mindfulness to be able to gain control of your attention, focus it on what you want, and just that simple thing, it is called concentration, but it's a special type of concentration that is also relaxed. When we use the term concentration, often it denotes effort 
and yeah, a lot of effort, like squeezing and tight. I'm going to concentrate really, really hard. But a meditative concentration, it has the focus and the clarity, but it also comes with a sense of detachment and, and relaxation. The Buddha spoke about this balance of not too tight, but not too loose with your concentration. So you find this middle ground of equanimity. And then everything that arises doesn't disturb you because it's just a thought, it's just a vision, it's just a sensation. And you have equanimity, which means you react equally to everything. So whether it's a great thought, you've had some entrepreneurial idea that's going to make you millions in your head, you have to ignore it. Whether it's a bad thought where you're judging someone or plotting revenge about what somebody said to you or some online conversation, just a thought. So you have this mind that is equanimous and is even, uh, but is focused and also relaxed. As I'm describing it, you might get a sense of, well, that's not so easy to do. So that training is both foundational and important and is really included in, in any good meditation technique. That's really helpful. People sometimes ask me, and I don't really have a good answer for this, but is there like a reasonable amount of time that after someone's been practicing that they should feel like it clicks or seem to get a good result from it? In meditation, you have to become your own teacher or you have to at least have introspection to be able to see what your attention is doing. So I can have a class of 20 people and I'm, all, I'm looking at these 20 people sitting still with their eyes closed but one person is just struggling with an itch and just wants to move and is screaming in their mind. Another person is in their mind is quite calm. Another person is planning the next holiday. From the outside, you can't tell what people are doing. So it's really up to you to develop this skill of introspection to know whether you're focused on your object or not. How long that takes, and this is why it's difficult living in the modern world, because it takes a while for our bodies and our nervous system to actually settle down. So how long does it take? Well, if you've just had a really stressful day, you're close to being fired, you're close to breaking up with your partner, there's stress in your life, that might take a little bit longer for your mind to settle and to concentrate. It might be a really difficult meditation. You might never settle. But if you've just had a done some exercise, had a relaxing bath with some nice oils, done some yoga, and then come to meditation. You, as soon as you sit still and, and watch your breath, you might feel that sense of peace and balance straight away. So it all depends what you bring to the meditation. But there's also an analogy, and this is where the letting go comes into it, that there's a muddy glass of water and if you leave that muddy glass of water alone, don't touch it, don't disturb it, don't shake it, just put it on a table, it'll eventually settle. The mud will settle to the bottom and the natural clarity of the water will become evident. So meditation's a bit like that. You can't force it. It sort of just happens by settling, by not following your thoughts, by not engaging in dialogue and just by resting. That's a way of settling the mud and your mind becomes clearer and clearer. So you can't rush that process. Sometimes it takes five minutes, 10 minutes into the meditation until you feel settled. 
The gold standard, though, most meditation teachers and a lot of scientific studies are based around 20 minutes of meditation. And if you've got a daily practice and you sit in the same place every day, which is important, there's a lot of cues and triggers that will tell your mind, right, it's meditation time. A lot of these things can support you going quicker into a meditative state, which will help you during the day to be more mindful as well. So if you have your cushion and you sit down and you make a little ritual, perhaps bow to your cushion like they do in Zen and set it up and then you sit, everything's going to be there and ready and prepared for it to happen. Meditation will happen naturally once you sit still and practice your technique. So it can happen very quickly. Sometimes it's just as quick as dropping your last thought and not engaging in your thought. But like I said, sometimes that can take some time. So it's not an easy answer, basically. There's no, you have to meditate for five minutes before you will clear. And there's no science that's been done on that. It's, it's really individual. It depends on your practice, how regularly you do it, what you bring to your meditation, what state of mind you're in, all those things. Yeah, that was a really good answer. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, like why they told you to sit in the same place and I guess it's because your body needs those cues to kind of help you get into that state and and I do do that I, I sit in the same place and it does seem to help a lot something I didn't know until pretty recently is that there are different types of meditation so can you kind of explain to us some of the different types and then I know I read on your website that you you do this inner fire meditation and that one sounded really interesting to me and there was also some controversy about you teaching that too can can you talk about that as well That's how I found you actually it was through the inner fire a year or two ago I was searching for that and that's how I found you That is key to my story actually and it's quite interesting because it's one of my most popular articles and people approach me all the time to it's called Tumo, and it's part of the tantric practice of Tibetan Buddhism. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have sutra and tantra practices, and a lot of the tantra came from that region and other practices like Shaivism and other Hindu forms of yoga are very influenced. If I go into the history, it might be a long story, but essentially I learned this technique at uh, the, the center I was staying. It was called a tantric technique. It required initiation is the, the key element to it, which is the guru giving you permission to practice it and uh, inviting you into that lineage and a particular deity. And they do a ritual and they touch you on the head and they say, now you can go away and practice it. And this is a big part of Tibetan Buddhism culture and the way they practice is this really close relationship with the guru and getting these initiations and a lot of these practices are called secret you're not allowed to talk to them talk about them with the uninitiated but i started to practice it and i got fantastic results myself and i read everything i could on it and particularly by a teacher called lama yeshi who was very open teaching to westerners and he said this was one of the best techniques for Westerners because it's very technical in a sense. It's a breathing exercise and a visualization exercise, and it's really easy to do, and you can get quick results. And he says, for that reason, it's really good for Westerners because they, our mind doesn't hold on to Zen-like abstract paradoxes too well, you know. But when you say breathe deeply, hold, breathe out, do this, Westerners are like, all right, I can do that. 
So, and it was very similar to a lot of the yogic techniques I was doing in actual yoga. Uh, I was also going to yoga classes and you might do a pranayama breathing and some holds and things like this and some locks. And it was all in that vein and similar, which any beginner can go to a yoga class and do these types of breathing. So I made all these arguments that we should be teaching beginners and I was taking classes. So I started to teach beginners and they were getting great results too and love the technique. Um, I'm not sure if you read about this particular incident, but a woman had quite an orgasmic experience in one of my guided meditations. And she went, she didn't come to me to talk about it. She went to one of the nuns at the center. And this is, by the way, it was mostly nuns at this center, which is female monks, you know, so there was these women. And she told the nun about it and the nun's like, what is Chad teaching in there? We didn't realize like he should not be telling you these techniques. And then I got into trouble for it. The nuns came to my classes to keep an eye on me after that. I wasn't allowed to turn the lights down because I'd turn the lights down. I'd have candles. I'd use a singing bowl. All that wasn't strictly Buddhism. Uh, and I got chastised for it greatly, and I had to go back to just simple techniques or teaching them the basics of Buddhism. But then we had an underground class that went off-site because they told me, look, if you want to teach this stuff, go off-center and do what you like. And that was the start of my real teaching career because I did go off-site. I started in a garage teaching this technique, and, and people loved it. And my argument, along with the teacher that I learned from, Lama Yeshi, is it's so great for Westerners because it's a technique that you can grasp onto and get immediate results. And it is a powerful technique. And along with all the breath work that's so popular these days, I feel I've been vindicated because a lot of these techniques are just becoming huge. And there's the Soma movement and uh, the Wim Hof movement and, and a lot of these breath work techniques that sort of draw upon these ancient yogic and Tibetan traditions that use those techniques. So it is one of my favorite. It's uh, it's one of the best ones to clear out the mind. We can talk more about breath work, but that particular technique called Tummo uh, is a really powerful technique. That doesn't answer your question about, tell me about all the different techniques. That's just one technique. So there was kind of another question in there. I just was wondering about some of the different, I know there are too many to go into detail about all of them, but. Um... We've got a Facebook group, The Way of Meditation group and I asked the question once how many types of meditation are there what type of meditation do you practice and there was like 50 responses and they're all very varied and I've actually tried to collect a lot of these teachings to make some sort of system because Tibetan Buddhism kind of did the same thing they got Indian Buddhism they got Zen they got the yoga they got the Shaivism and they put it all into a big curriculum so I've been kind of trying to place techniques and put them on a continuum uh but it's a very difficult process they often have different contexts behind them different views of um, you know world views and the paradigms they use uh, and their ideas of what we are you know between a soul and a mind and different layers of consciousness they can have slightly different psychologies behind them so it is very difficult matching the techniques it's worth saying though i think it's an easy way to understand it is there's only two types of meditation, and that is relative and ultimate. The ultimate practice of meditation is non-meditation. 
It's actually a non-technique. It's kind of what you find in Zen. And there's no technique you can kind of do because they say there is a part of you, a Buddha nature or a divine awareness that's already complete. It's already everything that it can be. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. Uh, like your negative deeds, don't harm it. It's always there and it's always pure. So it's sort of resting in that or having a bit of faith in that and just being that, that is an ultimate type of meditation. So things like letting go and, and just being and, and trusting yourself and all these sort of get towards this ultimate type of stillness and non-effort. And that's the ultimate type of meditation. Everything else is relative there's a technique and there's a result. So it's in the cause and effect world, which is the world we're used to, just the normal everyday, there's time and space. And we can understand it like the breathing techniques or Tummo, you do this, you get the result. You, you practice a mantra, you get this result. And they're relative practices. So there's, you could sum it up like that, that there's those two main categories, relative and ultimate. Relative techniques build you up to an experience, but they also, relative techniques clear away blockages, places where you're stuck. Ultimately, all relative practices are to get you to the ultimate realization of who you are, your true self. So that's what the ultimate meditation, I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but most of Eastern traditions are based around this discovery of your true self. So a lot of relative techniques, including breath work, are there to clear away the obstacles, the perceptions, the, the misidentifications. So it naturally reveals your true self. What I really liked about Tumo and maybe about these breathwork techniques, which I want to hear more about, is being an energy worker, a Reiki master, the energetic component of it. And I have had, the reason I was looking for the Tumo thing was because I did have some of those sort of ecstatic experiences energetically, just spontaneously when I was meditating and I was trying to understand, I was noticing that my breathing was changing on its own spontaneously when I was meditating and it would be combined with ecstatic energetic states which feel great, you know, <laughs> like you said. So there's, to me, for the Western audience, there is a component of like, because we, we want everything to feel great, right? Which, of course, that's only half of it, because as it would bring up good feelings, as you said, these blockages would come up and, and then lots of not good feeling things would come up to clear. But I do think there's like a motivative aspect to it where if it feels good, then we want to do it more and then we do it more and we get more benefit. So I do think that that's very applicable to the Western audience. Maybe you could talk to us more about breath work or the connection between energy and breathing and meditation. Yeah, what you said is completely valid. And that's something that that teacher I mentioned, Lama Yeshi, would say a lot. He said, and this is part of Tantra, is that we actually use our natural desire a fundamental desire is for pleasure and happiness. It's an organismic sort of drive that we have. So when you find that bliss and you, and you can hold it, it, it is really motivating and there's nothing wrong with going for it. I forget who said it, but there's nothing wrong with wanting pleasure. It's just looking in the wrong place that's the problem. And we look for pleasure in external things and situations that are temporary and we haven't got control over but we have got control over this inner fire, this inner bliss, 
can and it does motivate us to want to do it so that is actually an important aspect to it kind of like a side note it's not the reason for it but it's another reason why it's great for westerners so i've approached the breath work to call it that from a spiritual perspective but we have breathing courses and wim hof's brother marcel has his own course as well around breathing we have that on our website at the way of meditation and i've seen a lot of the research uh, the breathing course that we have is called the dopamine activation method so they've realized that there's a lot of positive physiological effects that go along with the breath work which includes releasing dopamine and other neurotransmitters serotonin that the reason perhaps that we feel so good from a scientific perspective so there's plenty of research now that shows how great it is i've actually had asthma and i pretty much cure it with the deep breathing like it really works out the lungs i recently went to have a checkup and the doctor invited me to go to like a breathing physio to help me with my asthma and i've never had that mentioned before ever going to a doctor so that's the thing that you can actually go and do a workout for your lungs and learn different breathing techniques so doctors are even recommending it i didn't go i said i had my own practices uh, but it might have been interesting to see what they did so the science is showing it has some wonderful effects that are provable uh, i know that's a bad word in science there is evidence uh, that it has very positive effects on your body your physiology it reduces cortisol reduces blood pressure and it does it all very quickly like mindfulness claims the same thing and there is research to show that mindfulness does a lot of these same things perhaps not so much the dopamine and the bliss feelings but there's a certainly a sense of well-being and a maybe a quieter type of peace with mindfulness but mindfulness is quite a difficult thing for people to do just to sit down and watch their breath and focus on an object we really have terrible attention spans these days you could probably blame social media and just the hyperactivity of modern life and what draws our attention but it's difficult but if you sit down and do breath work breathe in hold breathe out hold whatever the technique is you can get instant results and it's a way as wim hof says is tapping into your potential you can control your immune system you know wim hof had a disease injected into him i think it was a bowler or something really <laughs> you know serious and he didn't have any effects from it and his body fought it off easily and he attributed it to his method of uh, breath work also cold exposure and meditation but the power of the mind the not just the power of the mind but the power of the body we have our own pharmacy within us that if you can tap into it you can release these positive neurotransmitters that encourage neural connections and states of well-being as opposed to things like cortisol or adrenaline that if you're in the fight or flight situation you're stressed all the time it's very damaging for your body and your organs so breath work is scientifically there's evidence that it's brilliant I, i just can't speak highly enough of it it's a really good technique for people to grasp but from a spiritual perspective it's something slightly different it's all that but it's more as we know science hasn't truly wrapped its head around consciousness yet and what consciousness is and, and how we interact with it even though it's one of the most fundamental aspects of life that we're conscious beings it's like at the ground of our experience that we're conscious so this is an important aspect of 
breath work and the tummo and these exercises is to go into subtler layers of consciousness for the purpose of going right down to the source. They're also one of the best ways to clear out obstacles, blockages, energetic blockages uh, to help reveal that true nature that I said. In Tummo, the very purpose of, of having this bliss arise is that bliss isn't just, it isn't just a chemical. It's not just serotonin or dopamine. It's something way more than that. It's a state of consciousness that is very refined and can see reality better than our normal state of consciousness. So in Tummo, you give rise to these blissful states of consciousness. But in this practice, then you're meant to do techniques looking at emptiness or look at reality without the words, without the, the judgments to see a clear, naked experience of reality. They call it a non-dual experience. It's non-dual. It's not two. There's no, you feel oneness. There's no you separate from the world. So these experiences are the important experiences to go deep into what might be called enlightened experiences, have an awakening to these deeper states of consciousness. So in a sense, they're nearly a utility to dive deeper into your own mind and states of consciousness to go really right back to the source. It seems like breathwork it sounds like the holy grail, but I, uh, it seems like it would be really great for, I know a lot of people that have frustration with getting started with meditation and have given up and not been able to feel like they're getting anywhere or experiencing a shift. And it seems like breathwork is perfect for our times, as you said, and this time of COVID with this respiratory illness that people are worrying about. It seems like mm. it would benefit not only all the stress that people are experiencing, but also maybe help, you know, their respiratory system should they need to fight something off. It just seems really, really valuable. Totally. I've been promoting it a lot. I think, I think if instead of the news promoting fear every night and talking about COVID cases and different things, it really is a disease that affects people differently depending on your immune system. And we know through Wim Hof's work that this definitely improves your immune system. What I was going to say, it'd be great for the news every night to have a new tip on how to naturally improve your immune system. We should all be supporting each other's immune systems, which includes diet and exercise and everything we know. But breath work is such a, an essential aspect to it. And just going to what you said about it seems good for beginners it really is it, it really is a great remember I, I mentioned before how quickly you get into a meditative state it all depends on your state of body and mind that you bring but if just three relaxation breaths can really relax the nervous system it can actually switch uh, from fight or flight which is just subtle it's not like you're fully stressed but you're in that nervous state of being the, the fight or flight through the sympathetic nervous system, but through a few deep breaths, it switches to the parasympathetic nervous system and what was coined the relaxation response. So a few deep breaths can really just set the mood, and I always recommend it before you start a meditation practice. When it comes to a technique, it might be worth mentioning 
that people think of one technique, like you sit down and you practice mindfulness or you'll sit down and you practice loving kindness or something. But the way the Tibetan Buddhists do it is it's kind of like a, a yoga session or something where you do lots of different techniques. So you'll start off with setting your intention, what you want to do, uh, doing some love meditation, doing some deep breathing. They make offerings uh, and conjure up states of gratitude for their teachers and for the universe. And this is all what's called preparation before you even start the main body of the meditation. And then there's things you can do after your meditation, like dedicate it to the benefit of all beings or towards you achieving enlightenment or experiencing the source, or you can dedicate it afterwards. So there's a whole series of meditation techniques that are fundamentally different that you can include in your own practice. And that's what I work with people to do is put that together. And that's individual. Somebody who's experiencing a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, will need a certain sort of technique to calm their nervous system down, to get past those worrying thoughts. But someone with, say, a trauma who might be triggered from just sitting down and breathing, they don't feel safe. They might need other techniques that help them to feel safe in their meditation before they can just sit and do the mindfulness. So in a sense, it's very individual what you do, but a lot of that is just a preparation. The actual main body is more universal, that the mindfulness, the resting in your true nature or the breath work is more universal, but everyone's inspired subtly different ways. So everyone's different you know i never heard of anything like that but it sounded really fascinating to go through an exercise like you just described where it's almost like a yoga session and you're going through these different types of meditations it's kind of blowing my mind right now actually (laughs) i want to try something like that but um you know what i loved is on your website it looks like you're cultivating this little group of people you mentioned um, this Wim Hof and uh, Marcel, and there's this other guy, Phoenix, I guess, on your that's in your group of people, and it's kind of like your little all-star team, it, it seems like, when I look at your website, and I just think that's a really cool concept. Are you guys working on things together? Yeah, it's I like the all-stars kind of thing. That's the idea. We wanted to get some really great teachers together. Oscar Phoenix is uh, my partner. Uh, my business partner, and we've collected those meditations. I've, I've just, with um, Buddhism, they say there's 84,000 types of techniques for 84,000 different people, but that's just an arbitrary number. Really, there's as many different techniques as there are people because we're all in just a slightly different relative place. We're all going to the same place, you could say, like the top of the mountain, but we're all starting from somewhere different. I'm kind of against fundamentalism that this is the way you have to do it and if you don't do it this way you won't get to this great result that's the only result that's worth achieving so early on I didn't want to set myself up as a guru or my system as the best way or whatever so I'm very eclectic in in what I present I'm very open to other teachers teaching on my page that we have lots of different teachers and coaches and energy healers and mentors that contribute to our discussions in our group. So that is kind of my plan, is to have the all-stars, the best meditation techniques for people. And everyone likes something different. Some people love my stuff. Some people love Oscar Phoenix's stuff. It is different. And then there's the the Wim Hof breathing uh, and different techniques. So 
it's what you're drawn to. You've got to find your own technique. A little bit like finding a therapist or something. You know, you have to really connect with that person to be able to go deep into therapy and discussing issues. You know, it's a little bit like that with a, a, te- a meditation teacher or taking a guided meditation. You've really got to relate and, and feel like you're coming from the same place and then you can connect and go deeper. And sometimes that takes a bit of shopping around to, to find what resonates with you. Sometimes it clicks straight away. Uh, you just feel something or hear something. You're like, yep, that's for me. So, yeah, my approach is is rather eclectic, but at the same time, I try to map it onto that curriculum I mentioned, which I have in my head. And Tibetan Buddhism has this type of curriculum too, where you start here, you prepare, you, you travel along stages and, and then enlightenment or full self-realization is the goal. So you can place everyone on this curriculum. Everyone's teaching something different, but I think they're all on this continuum of practice that leads to awakening. For myself, because I've been meditating for about 20 years, I don't really like a lot of structure and discipline. So my meditation style and so forth has changed over the years. And now I'm kind of a, as I feel, there's a million meditation techniques. And as I feel in this moment, um, I will do that one. But I'm curious about you. Have you, is it your practice been pretty much the same for yourself all of these years? Or have you changed in your own practice? I think I have a foundation for me, it's very much comes from that, the ultimate type of practice, which I think should can be included into any practice, which is the non-effort. It's kind of a lazy man's approach, and I'm quite lazy, so <laughs> you don't have to do anything. It's more like drop that thought, drop that effort, drop that stress. You know, there is, there is some effort to drop kind of thing, but mostly you find this flow where the stillness of non-effort kind of meets the movement of life. So I sort of strive to get into this relaxed flow state, whatever I'm doing, whether it's busyness or, or stillness, to find that flow. But other than that, I do, uh, like I mentioned my asthma before, I've gone very hard at breath work and that's had some great results. I fluctuate with uh, visualizations. The tantra involves visualizing yourself as a divine being and your whole body is made of light and vibration. It's a very powerful method to overcome our normal perceptions of ourselves. And it's part of the tantric practice of Tummo. Like while you're doing that breath work, you're meant to visualize your subtle energy body and yourself as a divine being. So, yeah, I practice that over the years off and on. Uh, and there's other practices I practice off and on. Loving kindness is something I went really deeply into uh, as a monk. And that was a beautiful practice. That's the emphasis of Tibetan Buddhism is great loving kindness and great compassion. And that in itself is really powerful and, again, can have some physiological effects they're finding now. The heart, and there's the Heart Math Institute that studies the resonance, uh, the frequency of the heart uh, and things like that that can be measured through science. And there's a loving kindness is so good for your health, you know, and forgiveness. So, but I haven't really done that as intensely since I left the the monastery, even though it's very needed out here in the world, loving kindness and forgiveness when you're dealing with people all the time and neighbours. Like I live in the suburbs. Social (laughs) media. Social media. It's a great practice. So, But no, my, my practice has changed a lot over the years, different emphases depending what I'm going through and I'll often apply, they, they call it applying the antidote. 
So if I'm feeling very frustrated and angry and I'm just noticing that, might not even know why, uh, loving kindness is something I always go to to help transform those types of emotions. So it can be quite antidotal. It depends on what you're going through to what you want to achieve. If I, I need more energy for my business or my life, you know, I'll practice other things that are more forceful. So speaking of your own practice, you know, I know you've done these things for years and years now. And just for myself, you know, I've meditated for several years and I've even had like some very strange and profound and unusual experiences. And I'm always curious if other people have those kind of things happen to them too. And I'm just wondering if you have any that stand out to you that maybe you'd like to describe. Something that pops into my mind talking of compassion is when I first went to the monastery and doing all those prayers was crying sort of nearly uncontrollably for absolutely no reason just doing the techniques. And that's something that has happened to a lot of people. There's even a great teacher, Ajahn Chah, who's a famous forest Zen monk, says that if you haven't cried during meditation, uh, you haven't meditated yet. Now, again, I don't like to be... I mean, it's a great saying, and it comes from a master, so it's worth saying. I mean, I don't think that's a rule. You have to have cried. But it felt very emotional and spiritual going through those experiences, especially as a guy, you know. And this is in public. This is in a group. And I'm just <laughs> water streaming down my face. And so that was quite moving. And I've had some, I think, lucid dreams are quite amazing when you can wake up in your dream and, like, know that you're dreaming. I practiced that for a long while, uh, trying to intentionally do it. Uh, that was quite a trip and very fun thing to do. That's quite amazing. A lot of people report different things too, and, and you start to see the commonalities between everything people are saying and it's difficult for me as a teacher because I uh, so many people just want to come to the teacher and say oh, I had this experience what does it mean and I'm like well if you come from this school of thought it means this if you come from this school of thought it means that if you think it on a science perspective it could mean this I'm not one of those teachers that has all the answers even though people would love to hear them and I don't want to pretend that I know. Since I've come out of the monastery, a lot of it, a lot of teachers just teach from the books kind of thing. If somebody says something, and I know all that stuff, like I'll say, oh, look, my teachings say this, but then I know that there's another teaching that says that. So I don't want to be just a book teacher. I want to teach from experience in my own authentic relationship with my meditation. And so there's a lot of things that I'm just like, well, I haven't really experienced that. I don't really know what's going on. It is still a bit of a mystery because it doesn't make me as popular as some of the teachers that have all the answers and, and will say it and they, they, they seem to develop big followings because they seem to have all the answers. But I think that's a bit of a trap. But certainly mystical experiences are fairly common that people have and they'd love to have them explained and put into context. But I think this thing called life is an ongoing mystery that we're still not going to understand with our current level of thinking or even the level of thinking of, of ancient teachings either. You know, something more to it all. Yeah, you have an incredible amount of um, material. I really love your website, and I've been getting your emails, I think, for a couple of years now. And I was going back and looking again, and I was like, oh, wow, I really want to take that mystical meditation online course. And you also have just, it's really generous. You have a lot of free material. Like when I went to look for that Tumo, I was shocked that you, you know, one, that you 
share that information. And then two, that it was, there was a free guided meditation. And anyway, along that lines, uh, it would be nice for our listeners, maybe if you could guide just a short little either breath work or meditation, whatever you feel guided to do. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Well, since we've been talking about Tomo, I, I can guide you through a basic technique of the Tomo and to see if people can get results from it and just to show how easy it is. So we begin by adopting a meditation posture, which is wherever you are, just sitting up a bit straighter. It's important to have a, a nice erect spine. And to do the full practice, just contemplate your body for a moment and feel the energy of your body. Feel the sensations in your body. Just adopt the view that your entire body is made of vibration, of energy, of movement, of light. So just take a moment to imagine yourself as made of light. And right in the middle of that, there's a central channel from the bottom of your torso, sort of going along your spine, but it's straight. It's about the size of a straw. It's hollow on the inside. It's glowing white or blue like the sky right to the tip of your head, down to the base of your torso. Just imagine that central channel of light. Now right next to it are these two side channels. So there's three channels that go from the top of your head to the bottom of your torso. Just imagine those And now lastly, there's a spot right behind your navel in the center of your belly. It's been known as the Tantien or the Hara. It's our center of gravity. Just imagine the smallest red ball of light and place that right in the central channel, right at the navel. Now, if you can't do these visualizations, the technique will still work. This is just the full technique. Start to breathe in through your nostrils and your nostrils are connected to those two side channels. Imagine you draw the energy or the breath all the way down those side channels and then they go into the central channel, into that ball of light. So just take a few deep breaths filling the belly and drawing it into that ball of light. Really try to drop your attention down to your navel. Longer than normal breaths. Now we're going to include a hold. So breathe deeply into the belly, filling up the belly, let it expand and then hold your breath. 
imagine that ball of light starts to heat up. The main thing is that ball of light. Keep your attention on it at the belly. And then release your breath. And when you release it, feel the relaxation spread through your body and particularly upwards towards the crown. So continue with that breath, breathing in deeply, holding. And that ball becomes magnetic. It attracts all of your stress, all of your strong emotions. It attracts all the energy of the universe and makes it stronger. It burns it up and transforms it into blissful energy. As you release your breath, feel that spread throughout your body. So we can continue in this way, breathing deeply into the belly, drawing our breath and our energy all down into that ball, hold As you hold, there's an extra bit here. You pull up from below. You hold your perineum muscle. You contract it and you pull it up. And then relax your neck and swallow and push the energy down. So we're compressing all the energy into the belly. And it's a bit forceful. Contracting your muscles, holding that energy. And when you release, release every single muscle in your body and feel that spread. So continue with this breath. This is the Tummo breath, the inner fire breath, breathing into the belly, holding, pulling up, contracting, and feel that ball heating up, blissful heat burning away all your stress, all your anxiety, all your trauma, just transforming it into relaxation, blissful energy. As you hold your breath, enjoy the stillness of holding your breath, the space that it creates and release. As we meditate in this way, you can imagine that ball of light at your belly consumes your entire body in blissful flames. It flickers and blazes up and melts all the blockages in your chakras. It opens your heart. You feel that bliss in your heart opening, letting down all resistance, opening to the world, to everyone, feeling love, forgiveness, compassion. As you hold your inner fire in the belly, it blazes up to your throat, melting away all obstacles in the throat chakra. It keeps rising, opens up your third eye and gets all the way to your crown. Your entire body is blazing in blissful inner fire. Your chakras are all open, glowing. Just to finish the meditation, I invite you to completely relax. 
Just let go of the technique and see what's left. Become the observer. The observer of the energy moving through your body. The observer of my words, your own thoughts, anything. Just becoming that neutral observer of the here and now. Taking a big step back and just watching. Just rest, being complete and whole and perfect as you are right now. We can then just dedicate the practice so you achieve full awakening to your true self for your own benefit and for the benefit of all beings. And then we'll finish the meditation there. That was wonderful, powerful. I started to, something was coming up to clear that made me cough um, so I could feel it doing its work. It has some weird effects and it's different for everybody. That was a real fast version, compressed, you know. Every one of those stages you can take a lot longer on, particularly the breath and particularly taking time to get the fire happening and then it blazes up and melts all the chakras and that kundalini rises and then consumes your, compl your, your whole body. So you can do a retreat doing this practice and, and do like one and a half hour sessions is recommended four or five times a day, uh, which is what I've done in the past. And when you go that deep into these practices, you can start having those mystical experiences I spoke to you about and the complete melting away of all resistance and all stress and all worry and really refine your, your attention into the present moment, grounding it into your true self, the source of being. So that is a wonderful practice. But I hope that was a bit of a taste that people could sort of get the sense of what it is and the full practice. You can see it's so much more than breath work. It really is in, embedded in a tantric practice that has so much more to it, including visualizing yourself as a divine being and all the chakras and the energy body, very much part of the Tomo practice. I think it's great that you've brought it out into the public. And I, I was reflecting earlier when you were mentioning that about, you know, because I'm a Reiki master, a Reiki practitioner, something similar like that with Reiki, like where it used to be only passed on kind of in secret from teacher to student. And then somebody published a book and people had an uproar because she put all the information in the book and it was published. But then the Internet came and now everything's on the Internet. Yeah. And we're in this just different time in place where information, you know, we're inundated with information, but it's time for us all to sort of um, to be able to have access to it, but to have to develop our own discernment within ourselves, and kind of along the lines of what you were talking about before with the teacher is um, this is how I feel when I teach Reiki is that, you know, I'm there just as somebody who's walked the path before, but not the one with all the answers. And I don't want to be the one with all the answers. I want to guide people back to that 
the inner knower and their own empowerment through the practice. And it seems like, you know, that you follow a similar approach of helping people to find that within them. And that's the time that we live in. Yeah, thank you. Yes, that's very well said. Exactly. We're in a different time. That information is out there. There perhaps was a purpose in the past for this secrecy and for people wanting it and, and doing it fully and properly. But now's the time for, for that information is out there, which is why it's a wonderful time. The, all the ancient teachings, you know, the entire Pali canon of Buddhism, which is just if you put it in a book, takes up a whole room. Whereas that the entire teachings of Buddhism can be put on a USB stick, you know, or on a file on your computer. It's amazing. Perhaps there's an information overload, but I think it is time for these teachings to come out, for people to practice them. And at the end of the day, it's my argument with these nuns is that it's it's your own energy. It's your own, yeah, it's your own being. It's your own body. You can't keep that secret from people. You know, if there are techniques that can help you, relieve stress quicker and and to develop these states of bliss and to raise your consciousness people should know them that's it's nearly unethical to keep it secret when they when they can really benefit people and it's their own body and like you said i i just try to draw people into trusting themselves and to understanding their own wisdom and everything i teach is pointing people towards that ultimate meditation that ultimate wisdom of knowing coming from the, the ground of being, the awareness of that ground of being. And that's where wisdom comes from. And wisdom is not some fixed thing. It's in every moment there's wisdom and harmony with what you're doing. So you, you can't just tell people to do this because they have to be sensitive to the moment and completely embody that presence in the moment and from there trust, them, trust themselves, trust that wisdom. So a big part of what I teach is helping people trust themselves, trust their intuition, learn from it. The more they do, that the more they'll, they'll get better at it. But the more you ask questions and rely on others, the more you become reliant on that too, become quite dogmatic or, or fundamentalist about it. Yeah, I, I just want to mention that during that meditation, I actually did feel a lot of energy. Even though you said it was a compressed version, I, I felt it moving up and into my throat and and I do know I have blockages there and I could feel it like really working on that area and uh yeah I thought that was pretty incredible experience just now and I love that you said that you have retreats that focus on this kind of meditation for an hour and a half at a time for several times a day I think that would be a pretty awesome experience to go through so, it um, would be. They were my own personal retreats. I've never led anybody on that level of intensity. My retreats are a little bit, I guess, milder and involve other practices. I, I do day-long retreats with people. But I think retreats are very important. You have to remove yourself from your environment, from your house, because that just holds in certain perceptions and a matrix of being when you're in your own house. But when you break out of that and go to retreat, it gives you the opportunity to really make some breakthroughs and see things differently and do things differently and experience the world differently. So as we are discussing before, like communities are the way of the future. I think retreats are so important and they're a huge uh, booming industry as well around the world. Uh, I think for good reason, it's, it's really needed in today's world. Definitely. So right now with COVID, because we can't go to Australia, are you doing any online retreats? Or 
Uh, I have my coaching where I help people one-on-one, but I have my 21-day meditation challenge, which is essentially the entire path, that curriculum I spoke of, starting off with relaxation and going through various stages towards that effortless meditation. So that's what I always point people towards to do my practices. And once they purchase it, it's theirs for life. So you can always practice it, always go back to it. Just one of those practices you can do like day eight. I think the the loving kindness and forgiveness one is people just go back to that and do it all the time. So, yeah, like you said, I've got plenty of stuff online. I'm on Insight Timer with a lot of my meditations and my website has lots of free stuff. So I'm always pointing people towards those sorts of things for my online resources. Well, why don't you go ahead and give the actual website address for our listeners? Yeah, it's thewayofmeditation.com.au where you can find my 21-day meditation challenge and my free path to peace course and some other things. It's not all from me, as you mentioned, though. So you have to look for those things on the uh, site, click on courses. You find a whole bunch of courses. Uh, I've teamed up with Oscar Phoenix, who's a self-development guru, and he's just got so many wonderful meditations up there. And he's really popular on Insight Timer as well. But yeah, just go to the website, The Way of Meditation. You can check out uh, my blogs. There's a free mindfulness course uh, and my 21-day challenge is a small fee to it to keep me going. And there's lots of free stuff there as well. And subscribe to his email list. I really enjoy the emails. I feel like they're really content-rich and very helpful and well-written. Yeah, I I try to send out a new blog every week just to point people towards it. I I know there's a lot of sales and marketing involved in people's email boxes, um, but mine's not like that. There's just free content every week that you get. And join the group on Facebook, The Way of Meditation group. We've got about, I think, up to 15,000 people in that group. Uh, It's a very rich and varied group. As we say, it's uh, it's eclectic. It's it's non-sectarian. So whether you're a secular mindfulness practitioner or a Hindu yogi or a a Tibetan shaman, come along and and share your experiences. I love that community. It's it's really wonderful how people come together. And there's been so, like, I'm the admin, obviously, and I moderate it, but there's not many fights. I see more fights on just a Buddhist site, you know, a Buddhist group, you know, which I've been part of, or a Zen group because they'll say, no, that's not our way. This is our way. And everyone argues about the true way, you know, whereas I set it up as being eclectic and everyone's voice is heard uh, and to respect each other is the most important thing to create a community where we can all dialogue and inspire each other. So it's, it's quite an experiment and it's, it's going really well. That's the real miracle right there. No fights on yeah. that. <laughs> But yeah, well, thank you so much, Chad. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tiana. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. It's always great to have this opportunity to share with people and perhaps inspire them to start a meditation practice or start it again or keep going. That's what I'm on about, practicing every day. It's like exercise or anything else or a diet. You can't just eat well one day a week and then, (laughs) you know, the rest of the week. No, it's a daily practice and that's, I probably haven't mentioned that that that's the most important thing. It's called sadhana. It's a daily practice, daily spiritual practice, and, and that's how it really gets in and affects your life. 
All right. Well, you have a wonderful week, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much. Thanks again, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I want to say thank you very much to Chad Foreman for taking the time to share his gifts and knowledge with us. If you want to learn more about Chad and his offerings, please visit his website, thewayofmeditation.com.au. I'd also like to say thank you to Tiana Roser for all the work she does to keep this podcast interesting, and Casey Hansen for providing the music. If you'd like to learn more about us or find past episodes, please visit beyondtheillusionpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening to us, please leave a rating for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. This will help other people find us. Take care. <laughs>